0: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy filling in as host this week from New Jersey for Joel McCower, who is enjoying a few well-deserved days off. On this week's edition, Procter & Gamble gets back to nature. What makes Al Gore hopeful? And former Unilever CEO, Paul Pullman, advocates a more inclusive, Green Capitalism What makes us optimistic? This week on 350. It's July 24th, 2020, welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me as co-host this week from her home in Berkeley, California, is GreenBiz Associate Editor Deanna Anderson. Hey, Deanna. Hey,
1: Heather. How's it going?
0: It, it goes. It's uh, <laughs> hot, hazy, and humid here in New Jersey. What about uh, there on the left coast?
1: The weather here in Berkeley is a little bit gloomy. <laughs> um, it's been in the 60s this week, but I'm, I've been enjoying it when I go on my walks. Excellent. I
0: know that you're going to be taking next week off. Is there anything planned on your on your uh, personal agenda?
1: (laughs) Yeah, next week, I'm planning to go cherry picking um, like an hour away from here in Berkeley and Gilroy. I feel like that should be a good time. It will be my first time picking any fruits or vegetables so i'm super excited about that why cherries
0: is that because what's ripe
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i when doing a little bit of research and also um jesse who contributes to the site um she recently also went cherry picking and um stone fruit picking and she recommended this Mm. place so yeah okay and what are you gonna do with that those cherries I might make a pie. I might just Mm. eat them (laughs) straight from the from the fridge once they get straight from the tree. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I could sit and chit chat with you for hours, but I think what we should really do now is chit chat about the week in review. Get us started with our first story of the week eight cities share how racial justice is embedded into their climate plans it was uh c- compiled by uh, our aforementioned contributor jesse klein who's been doing some great work for the site um and she actually spent time talking to a number of cities boston Car- carmel indiana which is uh, an outlier if you will houston los angeles uh, Oakland, California, Orlando, Florida, Richmond, Virginia, and St. Paul, Minnesota, just to get a sense of um, how mayors and chief sustainability officers are are really responding in part to the pandemic, whether their climate change uh, plans have changed as a result of the pandemic, but also how they're flexing them in in light of the, the racial justice uh, reawakening that we're the, not reawakening, but awakening that we we're coming to here in the United States. Uh, I have some thoughts on it, but I'd love to start with you, Diana. Did you were there any major takeaways that you had from this particular piece?
1: So, Heather, you mentioned um, Carmel, Indiana, and how that is kind of an outlier. Um, and I think part of the reason for that was that um, the mayor, Mayor James Brainerd, he is a Republican, um, but he was talking about how to make his city greener through transportation initiatives. Um, And I thought that was super interesting. And he talks about how people can't afford a car. It's it's a a little bit hard for people to get around. Um, And they talked about how they unveiled in Carmel uh, that they will be having 225 miles of bike trails um, so that you can get anywhere in the city by bicycle and how important that is for environmental justice. I think that's really important, uh, especially as the world eventually opens up and people feel like not as safe on public transit. I just feel like being able to have other modes of transportation will be so important.
0: Yeah, it, that biking program was pretty cool. It um, looks like an amazing program. I was uh, reading about the the loan program in Orlando. Um, it's called SELF, Solar Energy Loan Fund. Uh, they're, they're, um, the city there is partnering with a nonprofit called Self, in in order to create funding for low and moderate income communities for home energy improvements. So stuff like um, uh, lighting and HVAC upgrades and so forth. And I think one of the things that really intrigued me about this particular product is that it is targeting people that are typically unable to get loans. It, it, it deals with the security issues um, that that are typically preventing them from getting loans for this sort of thing. So that, to me was an indicative of a program that we need to see more of um, I also love in Houston um, they're they and this was back mind you in January um, they're focusing on flood resilience for obvious reasons uh, huge problems um, with the recent hurricane there and so they've got three areas that um, that they're looking at it's called in uh, one of them is Independence Heights Greens Point and Kashmir Gardens and they're what's called, part of what's called the Complete Communities Plan Initiative um, to, to look at these um, African-American, Hispanic, Latinx com- communities and neighborhoods and really think about action plans and specific action plans that um, can help improve the quality of life there. So that's the priority for flood resilience there in uh, in Houston. Um, you know, Deanna, I'm curious, uh, and maybe you have more thoughts on Houston, but I, I know you came from Los Angeles. So what do you think of their plan?
1: So I did, I grew up in Los Angeles. I haven't lived there for a while now, but um, I think it's super important, uh, the work that they're doing. For example, this Transformative Climate Communities Program, um, in which they are giving <laughs> away grants, uh, a total of $30 million in grants to um, the Watts neighborhood, which I mean, I grew up basically down the street from that neighborhood, and I saw really? how. Okay. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> one of my best friends growing up, I would be at her house all the time, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of need for uh, people in that community to have access to all the environmental and sustainability <laughs> resources that are out there. So mm-hmm. I'm super excited to see uh, what comes of that program.
0: Yeah, and I you know it's. It, you mentioned that program. The it's got EVs and bikes associated with it too. So again, helping people get to where they need to get and, and helping them enable, you know, enabling them to find better jobs and so forth. That's such an important, uh, component, the, this urban transportation, um, uh, movement that we need to see, I think is going to be so key to the, to where we go from, from this point. So, um, I want to move on from this story to, uh, one that I actually did this week, uh, I interviewed the former vice president, Al Gore. So cool. <laughs> I've had the good fortune to have interviewed some quite extraordinary people in my life um but i was really nervous <laughs> to, to talk to al gore uh, just because i wanted to ask him so many things i wanted to get the right questions in um but i did this for an organization called semi s-e-m-i which focuses on the semiconductor industry and we were primarily talking about uh the role of the technology industry in addressing climate change and now uh rate the racial justice movement so uh, we have a Q&A up in the site this week, um, plenty of different topics that we cover, and uh, I encourage everyone to read it. Were there anything, uh, anything in that story that uh, really popped for you, Deanna?
1: Yeah, well, I guess right now I'm like super focused on all of the environmental justice conversations, um, and you asked Al Gore about that in your conversation with him. Um, and something that I thought was super interesting in response to your question, um, which is how tech industries can act internally and externally to change, uh, like the digital divide that prevents progress. Um, he mentioned organizations being or like not having any diversity on values, but having diversity in other. Um, Aspects like religion, points of view, uh, different ethnicities, and I—I I, I don't think I've ever heard of not having diversity on values, but I feel like that's super important as we mm-hmm. try to make progress um, in on so many issues.
0: <laughs> that is exactly the quote from this interview that really hit me hard. I was just like, "Wow, that's right. You have to have the same values in an organization to to push forward, but you you want those." those diversity of everything else in order to, to get to the right place. So yeah, that was really powerful for me too. Um, and I I just, I think the other thing that was really, really went struck home for me was the the idea that all of these technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, you know, these notebook computers that we're now talking to each other on and, and our smartphones, of course, and how and sensors, how important these things are are in fighting the climate, in you know fighting climate crisis and in giving us the data that we need to address it. But how we really don't we really don't have these in everyone's hands, and we need to get there. Um, and we need to also think about the, the the big power suck right that these things cause. And power consumption is a huge issue. AI is going to be only more prevalent, and and it's something that we need to manage. And rather than before it gets out of control managing it proactively um, before uh, it becomes a problem. So again, uh, um, uh, we're very grateful to have had the opportunity to to interview Mr. Gore this week and hopefully you can uh, spend some time with that Q&A. And then finally, we had another, and this is by you, Deanna, so you get to talk a lot (laughs) in this one. (laughs) But uh, we had a wonderful webcast uh, last week with Paul Pullman. Uh, the former CEO of, of of Unilever of course, and uh, a leader in the corporate sustainability movement, he is now the co-founder and chairman of imagine, which is really focused on bringing uh, leaders in, in various industries together to to push for systemic change across an industry so um, fashion is one of the industries that they've that they've focused on and and food, I believe. Um, they're putting some other things on hold because of the pandemic. I know the travel industry is on, is in their sights, but not something that they're going to try to address right now. But uh, Deanna, you covered this webcast for us. So what were some of your key takeaways?
1: So I have a few. Um, and I want to start by saying that I wasn't super familiar with Paul Pullman before covering the webcast, but I'm intrigued by the work that he's doing now. Um, and one of the uh, takeaways that I had from that is our society is kind of broken. And, and I feel like a lot of people are grappling with the fact that there are a lot of people who are marginalized that have suffered like the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the the ripple effects from that. Um, and he Pullman talked about how it is important uh, for companies to really like show up for the folks who are most marginalized. And I feel like that that really could be applied to so many uh, different issues, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation. Um, he also talked about the idea that the black swan is not just the COVID-19 pandemic at this moment, but it's also a lack of leadership in government and also in corporations. And basically just how important it is for people for corporations to be courageous and really step up and do the work that they need to show up for their employees, show up for their citizens. Um, So those were a couple of my takeaways um, from that conversation, which was super inspiring.
0: Well, thank you for that. Uh, You can read Deanna's story on the site, of course. It'll be linked here in the episode run list. Um, And you should also check out the archive of the webcast, which is also on greenbiz.com. long been a sustainability conversation, but more recently there are market and policy forces that are really changing consumption patterns far more than consumer preference ever could. Jim Giles, who is a senior analyst for food and carbon systems at Greenbiz, wrote recently about the trend, and he spoke with Joel McCower about what he's been observing.
2: So it seems that the protein world is going through some big changes and it's not just about impossible burgers. What's going on here?
3: No, it's certainly not. I think there are huge changes afoot. I was actually prompted to think about this because the UN came out with its new projections around meat consumption. And uh, they're saying that meat consumption will fall this year and it fell last year as well. So that's a kind of interesting trend. And it's it's sort of tempting to say, oh, well, that's just due to coronavirus and a disruption to supply chains and other things that are happening in China, for example, with some other diseases jumping over. Um, from the meat supply, but actually I think there are bigger, longer changes at work here, which could be quite damaging to the industry around the way that policymakers and consumers are are really starting to think very differently about meat consumption.
2: So what kinds of forces are, are, are changing meat? It's not just consumer preference, as I said, what is it?
3: Well, I think the first thing that's happening, and this is really belated, is that policymakers are starting to pay attention to agricultural emissions. And if you think about how long now we have been having this debate about reining in emissions, it's kind of incredible that it took this long to get to agriculture, because if you take our whole food sector as a whole, it's around 25% of global emissions. So it's really sort of comparable to the sectors we paid much more attention to, like energy and heavy industry and transport. But for various reasons, agriculture hasn't had that much attention. That is now starting to change. We're really seeing agriculture play a bigger role in some of these uh, large international negotiations around climate change. And of course, that's going to be potentially bad news for the meat industry because so much of agriculture's emissions are tied up in meat production. And we're starting to see the first changes coming out here. So, you know, the one that really grabbed my attention is in New Zealand, uh, where they've decided from 2025 onwards um, to include agricultural emissions in the country's emissions trading scheme, which is effectively, uh, will effectively be a tax on meat and any other food that has high levels of carbon emissions associated with it. Now, that's the, the biggest Concrete change I've seen, but I've also noticed debates going on in Germany uh, and in the Netherlands around how you take all these externalities um, that we don't currently pay for in meat and factor them into the price of meat, uh, which obviously is going to make it more expensive
2: yeah, but uh, you know I've been also seeing all of these uh, developments around how do you lower the emissions from uh, particularly from cow belching or whatever the proper term is from of bovine emissions out of the front end. Uh, just the other day, very recently Burger King said that it it thinks it can reduce a cow's daily methane emissions by a third by feeding it lemongrass of all things. And I've seen some other, there's a few other companies that are making feed additives uh, to reduce uh, if substantially emissions. So isn't that a solution to the agricultural emissions problem?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly part of it, you know, that you saw the the Burger King trial, which I think is really exciting. There's a lot of work going on with sea, uh, seaweed additives as well, which may reduce um, add them to cow's diets and it reduces methane emissions. Um, if we had sort of someone speaking for the industry on the line here, I'm sure they'd say, oh, oh what about regenerative grazing? You know, some studies have shown that you can even produce uh, burgers that are carbon negative if you change the way that you graze cattle. And I think all of these, I think all of these things are really important, and I think they will add up to reductions in emissions um, from ranching, which is great. But whenever I speak to the people who are involved in the kind of really big picture modelling, sort of looking at how we transition to a really low carbon or, or negative carbon um, food systems, you know, over the coming decades. They all say that big reductions in meat consumption are needed as well as these new low-carbon farming initiatives. So I think they're important, but I doubt they get us to where we need to go on their own.
2: Well, that brings up the, t- the topic of alternative proteins, and I did say this is beyond impossible burgers, but impossible and beyond meat and the others uh, do play a factor here. But you said that uh, in, in your article that alternative proteins that we see today are not Likely going to be like the ones we're going to see not too distant future. Explain that.
3: Yeah, I think the way that we look at alternative proteins right now is far too narrow. We think about them kind of as, as, as the finished product, and that is equivalent to thinking about the very first cell phones. If you remember those first cell phones, they were the size of a brick. You know, they were in, needed incredible amounts of power. Uh, they, they were just not convenient in any way. It would be like looking at one of those cell phones and saying, "Oh, well, this technology is not going to make any difference." You know, no one's ever going to use this, because alternative proteins are an emerging technology. They're not; they're far from the finished project product. Um, there's an um, amazing amount of work going on in labs, at alternative protein companies, uh, to make these products better, and they get better every single day. So we should expect them to absolutely sort of be transformed in terms of not just how tasty they are and their ability to mimic uh, real meat, but also in price.
2: Price will come down dramatically. So as you wrote, as these technologies, as you called alternative meats, uh, begin to ratchet up, it's going to put a dent in traditional beef consumption, and therefore it's going to have to spread the uh, cost of producing meat to a smaller amount of output. It sort of reminds me of how utilities had to, as renewable energy uh, ramped up and went, people disconnected from the utility, that fewer and fewer ratepayers had to pay the price of the grid. What's going to go on there?
3: Yeah, I think the utilities example is is a great one because we see this dynamic happening elsewhere with other disruptive technologies. And we tend to think of disruptive technologies as linear coming along and displacing more and more market share. That's not how it happens. They actually need to displace a relatively small amount of market share in order for the incumbent industry to be in big trouble. What happens is that, say, if we take the case of alternative proteins, maybe the um, Things like impossible and beyond meat start to produce ground beef that's really better than the real thing and cheaper and, and they start to kind of dominate the market for ground beef that's bad bad news for the cattle industry which is already on super tight margins it means that all the costs of production and processing have to be borne by the rest of the industry suddenly they've lost all their ground beef sales um, that drives up the costs of all the other meat products, which then in turn makes the alternative protein substitutes more cost competitive. So they gr- begin to grab more market share, driving up further, driving up the cost of the other conventional products. And you get into what um, the analysts at a, a really interesting organisation called Rethink X have called uh, a death spiral. Uh, and they predict that the the sort of disruptive Technology only needs to grab somewhere between 10 and 15% of the market to trigger this negative feedback cycle.
2: And that death cycle is exactly the term that used in utilities as it relates to renewable energy. As fewer ratepayers uh, have to pay for the grid, prices go up, people defect from the grid, and there's that spiral as well. So, And then finally, Jim, there's also the human element of all this, all those people working in all those meat processing plants as poor beleaguered workers, but also the, the ranchers, farmers, and meat other uh, intermediaries in the meat supply chain Uh, are they at risk? I think everyone's at risk and I think what we need to be careful here is not to kind of
3: celebrate these potential changes there's clearly something good about them in the or potentially good about them in that we do need to reduce emissions that is absolutely essential so we should welcome that component of it and I think but I think there's a temptation here particularly because uh, the meat processing companies have been so criticized, and I think rightly criticized for their response to the coronavirus pandemic and their inability to protect workers. There's be a sort of tempting to celebrate the troubles that this industry will face. Um, that is very short-sighted because whole communities rely on these processing plants and on on ranch facilities. Um, and it, it's it's far beyond, of course, the the immediate processing facilities. You know, there are estimates that, the main meat industry lobby group estimates that around 5 million people work in jobs affected by the meat industry. If you hold a pension um, that's invested in the stock market, as many of us do, you're probably invested in companies that touch this industry as well. So there's an enormous consequences of this kind of death spiral if we see that. And what we would like to happen, as is the case of utilities or any, any other case where we see A transition of this scale looming we would like that to be managed we would like it to be a just transition so the people lose out um the people or the communities that will suffer can be helped to adapt to this this new situation that they find themselves in um and often as is the case in other industries and particularly in the food industry i I think we see a, a a real lack of that kind of leadership. I am not really aware of any government initiatives that are interested in making this a just transition, um, and that could prove to be a big mistake.
2: Well, a sustained, orderly, and just transition. This stuff is never easy, sustainability. You can read a lot more about these issues and subscribe to Jim Giles. Food Weekly Newsletter, fresh every Wednesday. Just go to GreenBiz.com. Uh, Jim Giles, Senior Analyst, Food and Carbon Systems here at GreenBiz. Thanks, Jim.
3: Thanks, Joe.
0: Last week, Procter & Gamble announced a series of investments in nature-based climate solutions with the goal of being carbon neutral over the next decade. We're talking about approximately 30 million metric tons of carbon dioxide from 2020 to 2030. Although it hasn't disclosed what it's spending, it has already announced projects in Brazil, Germany, Northern California, and the Philippines. Here to discuss this strategy is Virginie Helios, Chief Sustainability Officer for P&G. Virginie, hello. Hello, Heather. So I first have to ask, what inspired this path?
4: So, um,
0: you know, Ambition 2030, that
4: I think we talked a couple of years ago, we launched it in 2018, um, is still our compass. You know, this is about enabling, inspiring positive impact across our supply chain, our brands, our employees, and partnerships for those goals that are, too big for one company to achieve, and we have three of those goals, eliminating plastic waste, addressing water scarcity, and reverting climate change. And that's the context. So two years ago, we um, uh, set a science-based target on climate. So science-based target means that it is aligned with the objective to keep the temperature increase well below two degrees. And that goal uh, was to reduce by 50% of greenhouse gas emission in our operation. And we've made progress on this. Uh, We already purchased 100% renewable electricity in North America and in most of Europe. But then last year, something happened. A few things happened. Um, The UN uh, released a report, their their emission gas gap report, that basically said that we were collectively far off on on the climate uh, trajectory. And, And and this and, and a few other things basically made us uh, realize that we needed to uh, to go beyond this 50% uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction. And so um, we decided to go carbon neutral uh, for the decade. It's very important that we set goals that are within 10 years. I mean, first, because the decade is what experts have said is the critical intervention window if we want to have a chance to live out climate change. And for us, this is where we can drive accountability. People can commit to a plant for the next 10 years. And so this goal is carbon neutrality by basically compensating our remaining 50 percent greenhouse gas emission and um, using nature to help us because uh, experts have said that nature holds a third of the climate solution. So this is something that we have to do and that we can do at scale. And as you said, the objective is to compensate about 30 million tons of CO2 over the next decade.
0: Tell me about the projects you've already disclosed. How were they selected and how will they be managed? Yeah, so we've selected three and it's really the start of our journey. Uh, The the idea is
4: that we will, over the next couple of years, develop a full portfolio of projects that we'll need to do one of three things, uh, protect or restore, or improve the management of of critical natural ecosystems that that represent the highest stores of carbon. And so we selected the the three projects I'm going to mention in a minute. Um, First, in terms of, obviously, their carbon benefits, but also, uh, very importantly, the the related uh, social and and economic benefits that they represent, because hundreds of millions of people uh, rely uh, for their livelihood on this critical ecosystem. So... The three that we've selected so far um, is one, the the Atlantic Forest Restoration Project with WWF. This is one that uh, will have a big impact on on biodiversity, but also on water, water quantity, water quality, and also on food security for for the uh, indigenous population that that rely on on the forest for for livelihood. The second project is uh, joining the Evergreen Alliance. Uh, by the Arbor Day Foundation. And this one is more about restoring, and it's restoring uh, degraded forests in uh, Northern California and in Germany. Those are regions that have been uh, devastated by wildfires. And the third project is in the Philippines. It's the Palawan Mangrove Protection Project, which with Conservation International. And you know, mangroves are found in in many tropical areas. Um, they, they have this dense, um, uh, so dense forest that that basically line the shores, and they they play a big role in in stabilizing um, the coastlines and and reducing, for instance, uh, the impacts of flooding. Um, so so they actually uh, are protection against uh, the impact of climate change, and but also because their soil is very rich it can absorb and store a great deal of carbon. So uh, they are critical in, in limiting global uh, warming. Unfortunately, many of those language forests that are disappearing and, and need to be protected. So that's the intent of this specific project. And so for um, for both the Atlantic Forest in Brazil and the Philippines project, they are in, in phase one. So that's the, basically the planning phase. It's coping. It is about engaging local stakeholders to to make sure that we are doing the right thing, but also that we are looking at the um, entire system, you know, as I mentioned, both the environmental, but also the social uh, and the economic
0: benefits. And after that, we'll we'll move into the the implementation phase. So how does P&G fund initiatives of this nature?
4: so this is a, this
0: is a bit of a first for us so so typically um our
4: sustainability uh, programs are funded from within by our businesses because you know our approach is that sustainability is built in it's part of the the business strategies and the plan but for this you know investing in natural climate solution obviously this is impacting above and beyond um any specific business and and it is a ten year commitment so so this one will be funded by, by a PNG corporate fund, and um, I know that you mentioned that we haven't disclosed the amount. But this is the reason: it's very clear. It's because for us, success is not how much we invest; it's how much we compensate. And the goal is to be able to compensate the totality of our remaining emissions for the decade. So, whatever it costs. Um, and so this is very important that we get to uh, neutrality by the end of the decade, and this is obviously uh, impacting all our businesses. So, so we take that to the higher ground and 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 have the PNG funds um, cover it.
0: Part of your updated commitments includes a renewed commitment to renewables, including geothermal. So I'm wondering how that. That source of energy is factored into your emissions reduction so far. How much has geothermal been a factor for you?
4: Yes, we uh, typically look at all kinds of of uh, renewable energy and 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 we try to to innovate with what 's locally available and and for geothermal in, in particular it's um, in in many parts of China it is actually a very viable source of, of renewable energy so for example, we have our plant um, in uh, Zipping, uh, our beauty care plant, which is uh, using geothermal for, for both the, the heat, the, the steam and, and the cooling. Uh, it represents about 10% of, of the site, total energy. Um, and, you know, we are learning uh, there and we will reapply, you know, in, in other parts of the world where where it makes sense and you know, as part of the the on-site options that that we are uh, looking at.
0: One final question for you. What advice would you give to sustainability teams about investing in nature-based climate solutions?
4: So I would tell them first, consider it, uh, because as I said, nature holds a third of the climate challenge. So uh, we'll definitely encourage people uh, to go there. Uh, But the second advice would be, remember that job number one is to reduce your emissions. So do it when you have exhausted all possibilities to reduce the, your greenhouse gas emissions. And I guess the third advice would be do it with credible partners, you know, because this is complex. Um, and, and your partners will be able to uh, to recommend where um, you have the greatest impact in terms of carbon benefits and, and think beyond just tree planting. We talked about the mangroves, protection of the mangroves, for instance, and the, the, your partners will also help you consider, as I talked, I mean, the very important social and economic co-benefits beyond the environmental. So select critical, critical partners who have experience in this field um, and, and go for it.
0: We'll end this episode with two more highlights from our interviews with the 2020 GreenBiz 30 Under 30 honorees. This week we hear from two individuals focused on the food system. Arturo Alizondo, CEO of Clara Foods and Alyssa Harding, the executive director of the Sustainable Food Trade Association.
5: Hi, I'm Arturo Elizondo, founder and CEO of Clara Foods it's easy to think that government just wants to stand in the way of progress. Right? That government is is is, is there to obstruct, to delay things. And what I really need to think is government is it, like when I was there, like they, they really want to work with the private sector. Like they really want to to make things work. They ultimately have positive intentionality and um, and so I think it really changed the way that that, 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 that at least we as, as Clara approach government because you know we, we want to be able to engage in every step of the way've been we've had very productive conversations and, and so I think that that you know I think switching them switching it from from seeing them as adversaries which I think oftentimes it's easy to kind of get stuck in that mindset of, of, of adversaries to, to actually make them, how do you leverage government to actually be a great ally for what we're doing? And and I think that's been a a very helpful way of looking at things. And then also number two is, you know, we're a biotech company. I think what's been helpful in being in government is that things don't happen overnight, right? There's a process. And that's, you know, I think helped me as well, you know, be a little bit more patient when it comes to to science and to process and, and really things play out as well but there's so many there are only so many things that you can influence and there are things that you need to let go
6: My name is Alyssa Harding. I am currently the executive director of the Sustainable Food Trade Association. Um, What my work really orients around with SFTA is um, transitioning to truly sustainable business models and working on developing a more sustainable, equitable food system. Um, My background is in agricultural ecology and environmental policy, and I've been working in the past few years in the food industry trying to uh, drive institutional change through sustainability. No small feat, but a labor of love. So one of the things that I'm proud to support, which is an initiative of a group called OSC Squared, is JEDI. It's Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. And so we've started with a Women on Boards initiative, a benchmarking survey across the industry to figure out where the gaps are, and then to develop programming and and connectivity across the industry to empower minorities, people of color, women to to have more executive roles within kind of the decision making piece of what what our work orients around. And I actually had the pleasure of mentoring a, a Pitch Slam participant. So at Expo West, New Hope throws this amazing Pitch Slam where up and coming companies pitch their brand, pitch their products, and, and try to win a huge prize pack. And Rachel, who is the founder of Ya yeah, Ya yeah, Ya, yeah, which is, utilizes yopon, which is a kind of tea-like ingredient. So it's a new ingredient that brings biodiversity to the ecosystems, but she's also bringing diversity from the farm to her office. She's working with um, a female minority farmer in the Southeast, which is improving their livelihood, and she's leveraging her brand to market those connections and the transparency from farm to retail. So I think empowering a a woman founder, women farmers, people of color, and finding ways to address the disparity, especially in land ownership and farming for minorities and people of color, that I think we just need to start to tackle that more than we have in the past, because all too often I sign on for a webinar or I go to an event and the room is, older white men and I think many of them certainly offer a lot of advice, a lot of experience, a lot of perspective, but it's hard for people in those situations when they don't see someone that looks like them in a place of power. So focusing on that and and leveraging those executive opportunities to diversify the way that our industry moves forward.
0: and that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com/350 to find out more about the organizations, stories and events mentioned in this episode. Hit us up by email at, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Until next time from all of us here at Greenbiz Group. I'm Heather Clancy. Take care, be well, and thanks for listening.